Hey everybody, this is Volts for January 12th, 2022. Volts Podcast, Don't Look Up, director Adam McKay on the challenges of making movies about climate change. I'm your host, David Roberts. The film Don't Look Up, available on Netflix as of last month, has become something of a phenomenon. It has drawn wildly varying, often quite personal and intense critical responses. Its critic score on Rotten Tomatoes is just 55%. But climate scientists loved it. I loved it. And the public loved it. Its audience score is 78%. In the week of December 27th, it broke a Netflix record with more than 152 million hours of streaming. As of this week, it is the second biggest movie ever on the streaming service, just behind Red Notice, just ahead of Bird Box. Audiences have ignored critics and embraced the film, which is not something you'd necessarily predict for a thinly veiled climate change allegory about the difficulty of grappling with bad news in today's information environment, especially one with such a, spoiler alert, bleak ending. It's not the first successful curveball thrown by its writer and director, Adam McKay. McKay first made a name for himself as a head writer on Saturday Night Live. In the early 2000s, he formed a production company with partner Will Ferrell and wrote and directed a string of beloved comedies from 2004's Anchorman through 2010's The Other Guys. But in 2015, he took a turn, writing and directing an adaptation of Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, about the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. It, too, was an unexpected hit, scoring McKay an Academy Award for adapted screenplay. His 2018 film, Vice, about Dick Cheney, scored Oscar nominations for picture, director, and original screenplay. He has demonstrated that, despite what the chattering classes often seem to believe, audiences are hungry to confront real issues. All along, he has wanted to find a way to make a movie about climate change. With Don't Look Up, he finally figured out how. I'm delighted to get a chance to talk to McKay, to hear about what he makes of the movie's critical reception, what his other ideas for climate movies are, and how he navigates the politics of speaking out on serious issues from inside Hollywood. Welcome, Adam McKay, to Volts. Thank you, Mr. Roberts, for having me. I've been an admirer of your work for a long time, been an avid reader of your writing, and uh, it is a pleasure to be here. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm an avid watcher of your movies, so we're going to have a fan club here. This is great. Let's start at the end. The movie is out now, has been out now for a while, uh, is out on Netflix now, has been out for a couple of weeks. So I guess we've had enough time now for you to gather some feedback. Uh, I mean, let's start with the fact, let's start with the fact that this movie has gotten more 
streams than anything in Netflix history. Did I read that right? Like it's enormously successful on Netflix. Let's start with that. It's a bit crazy. I was really shocked by the uh, by the response from audiences. And yeah, we had the most amount of they use viewing hours now as their metric. Mm. They used to use accounts that signed on, but viewing hours is actually a more accurate number. And we had the most amount of viewing hours in any single week of any release Netflix has ever put out. That is so wild. And then I understand we're about to pass Bird Box as the number two <laughs> all-time movie. And we've got a chance to be number one. Who knows? But Wait, who's one? It's a movie called Red Notice that actually just came oh, out. Yeah. It, oh, yeah. But it stars The Rock, oh, Ryan yeah. Reynolds, and Gal Gadot. <laughs> so if you had told me that our ridiculous slash dark climate satire would be contending with Ryan Reynolds, The Rock, and Gal Gadot in an action <laughs> film, I would have said you're nuts. So it's pretty uh, it's pretty fantastic. And more importantly, the responses, the sort of moment to moment online responses have been incredible. Just seeing people really excited by it, laughing. A lot of people really moved by uh, the ending of the movie, talking about crying, having really emotional moments with it. So uh, that's the thing that's been really exciting uh, is just seeing this worldwide response to this movie and a lot of people having the response of like, oh, my God, I'm not crazy. Uh, which is really, really cool. <laughs> or at least we're crazy. We're crazy together. Yes, yes. And then on the other hand, there's the critical response, which has been <laughs> just all over the place. I don't know what I expected, but it's been such a bizarre range. So what do you what do you make so far of the critical response? I've never experienced anything like it because we test these movies. You right. know, we screen them for audiences. And, you know, you work on the movie, work on the movie. And the last three screenings we had really played great. Like people were laughing the whole way through at the end. There was great discussion. And then I saw those critical responses. And, and in fairness to the critics, I don't expect them to mirror a test audience. They look at it with a different eye. So with all due respect, but some of the reviews were so extreme and angry. And, and I was like, whoa, what's going on here? But once again, they're critics. They got to do what they got to do. But it was it really took me aback. I just didn't see it coming. And, you know, you make movies, you get hit with bad reviews. So we were just like, all right, I guess that's that. And then when the movie came out, the responses were more like what we had experienced. We're like, oh, good. We're not crazy. So it, it was it was strange. I've, I've never experienced that kind of disconnect from the screening, you know, watching the movie with people to the critical response. It's definitely was the most surprising I've seen it once again. Nothing but respect for critics. They're very touchy. <laughs> if I dare suggest, I'm not. You're allowed to do that. But uh, yeah, it was uh, very surprising and unusual. No question about it. Anything that sort of struck home to you as, as you know, I'm, I'm sure you're a, a self-aware neurotic guy in this business and you probably have some <laughs> self-criticisms about the movie. Did any, did any of the criticisms uh, sort of strike home? 
Well, I mean, you know, when you make a comedy right away, you kind of subtract 20 points. Uh, it's just the way it goes right. with comedy. So I wasn't expecting us to be lifted on the critics' shoulders and like ticker tape to come down because I've made plenty of comedies and that's just the way it goes, which was fine because we made a very direct choice to have this be a comedy. I think the ones that surprised me were, and there weren't a lot, but there were about a dozen that were really angry and accused the movie of being smug and really said definitively, this movie will not relate to people. Uh, it's too smug. It's too liberal. It's not liberal enough. Um, it's playing to a small crowd. Those really were odd just because I, we hadn't experienced that at all with this movie. I mean, in any of the screenings we had done, that was never the slightest response that we ever had. With something like our previous movie, Vice, we knew that was tricky. Right. We knew that was not a fun story. So, you know, I read reviews and some of them were like, yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, but in this case, <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised by the timbre of the reviews, the anger of some of them. Once again, not all, some. Yeah. I have to say that over and over again. Yeah, some of them really seemed like, you think you're so smart. You're not so smart. <laughs> like, I'm smarter than you. A lot of critical reviews struck me as like, here are the ways that I am smarter than this guy who tried to make this movie. <laughs> this is a well, weird I, critical response. It, it was strange, but I think what it really points to when you're like, now I've had some time to digest it, is like, there's just a couple basic things. Like, we are living, regardless, like, if someone didn't like the movie or liked the movie, there's no question we're living in an incredibly strange time right now. I mean, we're kind of yeah. looking at a straight shot to American democracy collapsing. I think regardless of whoever you are, like the Democrats have kind of face planted. I don't see much in the way of a takeover from the extreme right. So that's going on while at the same time. This absolutely catastrophic giant story of the collapse of the livable atmosphere that is hard for even some scientists to fully get their head around. It's so mammoth. That's happening at exactly the same time. So it doesn't surprise me that people would be... Don't forget the global pandemic. Just toss that in there, too. Oh, my God. I mean, that's how crazy... And, and by the way, <laughs> towering, epic income inequality. I mean, it mixed yeah, right in with on. it. Yeah. So we have all this stuff going on. And the idea that people would have passionate responses to how do you tell these stories makes sense. And the idea that a lot of people would be on different wavelengths of awareness or no awareness or somewhat awareness on those stories that we're talking mm. about makes sense. And by the way, once again, I respect that. I'm not saying if someone didn't like the movie, it means they don't believe in climate change. Somehow through the social media lens, it became that I somehow had said that, whereas I never said that. <laughs> and people were like piling on like, oh, my God, which, by the way, seems like something directly out of the movie, of course. So I, I think it really makes sense. I, I think, you know, the reason we made the movie is because there's varying degrees of relationships with the idea of the climate crisis. And that's one of the problems we're confronting. So now that I have a little distance from it, part of me is like, why did I think our movie would be <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> any different than someone like yourself or someone yeah, like... I, I could have told know, you. I could have told you what would happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'll also say from my perspective, somebody who's been in this game for a long time, like, you know, you have this huge problem on your mind and no one official, no one who has power to fix it 
seems to be paying attention. Like you're yelling and yelling and no one else is paying attention, but other climate people. So you just end up talking to other climate people and you end up arguing with other climate people and forming these sort of teams and factions within the climate movement because no one else is paying attention. So I think that's sort of like become the culture a little bit of the climate movement is like your, your number one priority is to shoot down this new one who thinks he's smart. Like, I don't fully get it. I mean, have you noticed too, like the, what's crazy when you see, let's say, you know, uh, Chuck Schumer or some politician talk about the climate crisis, you could just tell the way they're talking about it. Oh, they don't get it. Yes. Like they don't really feel it in their bones. Someone hasn't communicated to them the depth of this and the urgency of this. And even when something like those crazy fires in Colorado, where there weren't even trees nearby, like the wind blew the embers into the neighborhoods and the videos are so upsetting or Kentucky with that, like, it looked like the devil had landed on the earth with yeah. that massive tornado and on and on and on. Alaska getting up to like whatever, 80, 90 oh, degrees, whatever it was. Broke the record by 20 degrees. And so you see these stories and then you hear like certain people in charge or even in the media talk about it. And you're like, you don't you're not feeling that in your bones, but you can't when you have a movie, you can't say that because it sounds like you're saying you don't get the movie. You don't care enough about the cause. <laughs> right. And I'm like, hey, I don't fucking care about the movie. Like, <laughs> I don't like, I mean, what we're talking, like, I hate the movie. I don't give a shit. <laughs> like, I'm not, we're not posturing like, oh, look how important we are. No, like, we actually think this is a giant thing. And all these actors came together. There are easier projects we could have done. And <laughs> yes, and like, yes. and you think when we're saying this is a big deal, we're like, positioning ourselves for award season like it, yeah i know if you're going for a money grab maybe like climate <laughs> change is not the your go-to but that, i think that's me splitting hairs though because the overwhelming story here is that i mean it's 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 to me it's just interesting that response and once again with all due respect to anyone who had it but the bigger picture here is the crazy appetite of literally we're talking with these Netflix numbers, hundreds of millions of people yeah, that's uh, wild. having this very visceral response. And it's really fantastic. And then the other joy of the movie was just seeing a lot of climate scientists say, oh, my God, I feel seen like Peter Thomas <laughs> wrote a great right. piece where he's like, oh, that's it. That's what I've been going through. And George Montpiat wrote a beautiful piece about the emotions he's been carrying. So the overwhelming story here is we're overjoyed with the response. We're overjoyed with the release. But at the same time, I have much more. I already had sympathy for people like yourself, but now I think I get it in a much more personal, in a much more personal way. You know, also sympathy for politicians trying to broach this. I mean, you think you get all these weird, super intense, super specific responses. I'm sure any politician who says these words publicly gets that same weird range of of blowback, you know, so I have some sympathy for them, too. I, I definitely less. Uh, a little bit less. I mean, I, it really is. You realize, and we did it in the movie, because for years I've been like, why isn't a senator or a congressman going to a podium and like crying or yelling? Right. And then you realize, oh, that wouldn't like George Montpiat did that. He cried on a show. There's clips all over the place of climate people getting emotional on shows. And it's funny because 
we wrote that in the movie. You think I would know that, but it, it's the response kind of really taught me how deep it is. And uh, yeah. and this level of the challenge of the communication of this is so titanic, how you break through the people framing it as self-interest. Well, of course, Dave, you have a podcast you do and you have your own uh, news source, Volt. And so, of course, you think it's a big deal. And it's like, no, I... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's let's go back in time a little bit. You've you've said in um, previous interviews that it was an IPCC uh, report that sort of originally grabbed you and shook you by the lapels and got you freaked out about this. That was a 2015-ish, 16-ish, am I right? Because the IPCC, you know, they do this every few years. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's really a longer road than that. I mean, it was definitely the Al Gore documentary was the first mm. time Inconvenient Truth where I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's no joke. You know, the famous moment where he shows the graph skyrocketing definitely hit me. I definitely started talking about it, wondering what was going on, but where it went from something I was worried about, or I would say once again, in those polling categories they use, where I went from the somewhat concern range (laughs) to the very, very concern range was that IPCC report and several other reports that came out culminating in me eventually not being able to sleep and my wife (laughs) being like, what's going on? And I'm like, I'm really like, I, this is bad. This is really, really, really bad. And, uh, and then I I went through a little period where people around me were like, Hey, relax. And I was like, no, it's really, really (laughs) bad. Uh, I was very late to this incredibly unfun party. Uh, you, 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 I think you showed up with some uh, onion dip around, you were saying around 2004, but uh, yeah, I came in around there. And then from every year since, it's just been escalating and reading David Wallace Wells's uh, Uninhabitable Earth and the more recent. Ooh, yeah, that, that'll do it. Yeah. So that that's definitely what led me to the on-ramp of, I got to do a movie about this. Yeah. So that's, that's what I really want to talk about. Cause one of the things I'm fascinated by, and one of the things, you know, I wrote about in my review is just the difficulty of making art about climate change. Just the difficulty of telling compelling stories about it in a way that will appeal to a mass audience. And presumably once you got freaked out about it, you being a movie maker, you started thinking about how can I get this into a movie? And you've talked about this a little bit that you had a few sort of ideas or premises come and go. And I, and I guess I want to spend a little time there. I'm curious what some of your early thoughts were for how you could cram climate into a movie. Did you have other ideas that were developed at all? Yeah. Well, some of them I'm still going to do. I'm actually working on a show with HBO Max called Uninhabitable Earth. Oh, really? It's sort of a Black Mirror uh, style show, anthology, hour long episodes uh, dealing with the climate crisis through, you know. No kidding, but fictional, like Black Mirror? 100%. Yeah. And each one will be an hour long. We'll have different directors and writers come in. I already have the first episode outlined. Uh, I'm behind. I was supposed to have the script written like a month ago. But uh, so we're doing that. But I can tell you a couple of the ideas. The first idea I had, and who knows, I may still do it, but it was a big, it was inspired by the um, Tarzan Legend of uh, Greystoke movie that came out, I think, in like the 80s. And I had read that Robert Towns' initial draft of that script didn't have one single word spoken in it. It was all Tarzan (laughs) with the apes. And then, of course, the studio made him add all the stuff where he went to England. And uh, and I actually met Robert Towns before he... uh, Wait, I don't want to 
have him pass away before his time. I think he passed away <laughs> recently, but I met him about four years ago and I brought that up right away because I found it really intriguing. So the idea I had was that it was 300, 400 years from now, and it's an area on Earth where that climate crisis has fully blossomed. You know, we've gone to three and a half C increase, four C increase. Most of civilization is gone, but there are little outcroppings of people that have hung on. And we focus on one group that lives between a storm and a desert zone. So they're in between an area where there's constant tornadoes and hurricanes and another area that's completely arid. Let's say it used to be Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada. And what they are is they're in a runoff area from the storm zone where water flows and it's created a, a deep crevasse. And they live in little Anastasi style cliff dwellings <laughs> on the side of the crevasse. And because of the water, they have a little civilization. They have like six, seven hundred people. And you see the detritus from the former civilization pieces, scraps of our old civilization that they've used in different ways. And then one day the water stops. And we don't say it, but you see from the drawings and the songs that this happens occasionally and that they have they've discovered that the person who can handle going through the uh, river of water to find what clogged it, it's best if it's a 17 year old boy because they're a little more fearless. They're at peak physical health. So they pick their 17 year old boy. But there's a girl who's in love with him and he leaves to go on the mission. They give him a couple of tools and she secrets away and follows him. Mm. So we basically follow these two teenagers as they go through the storm zone. And we have different encounters with different pieces of our old civilization. One scene was where they have to get across this massive lake. And in the middle of the lake, I, I thought it was a cool image. You see a giant white pole sticking out. And the boy goes under the water and you just see the city of Chicago there. Ooh. And that that's what they had. And it's the Sears Tower antenna that's sticking up and they have to swim across this lake. So it, it's a lot of different episodic kind of uh, encounters. I don't want to give them away in case I ever do do this, which now that I'm telling to you, I was like, it's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> so it was a big two hour, 40 minute, no spoken dialogue, epic film. And that was the one I was kind of going to go after and then I just started doing the thing, which I, I know you probably think about a lot, where I'm like, well, how is this going to play? How, how are people going to relate to this? And I, and I kept thinking, you know, it's, it's a little bit like a lot of dystopic sci-fi movies. There's been a lot of those made. And is it too easy to categorize it as that? Is the impact of it lost because it doesn't relate to our world now? Yeah, I mean, in all those movies, the apocalypse has already happened, so you frequently don't learn much about it, you know? Exactly. They're, they're rarely about the apocalypse itself. So then I had another idea that was about the carbon wars, and it's basically 20 years from now, most of the planet knows we got to shut down the carbon release, but there are holdouts. There are rogue nations and corporations that are basically like nations that are like, no. So there's a full on war going on. And I had a bunch of cool stuff for that. Then I had another idea that was more like a Twilight Zone episode about submarines from different nations fighting over claiming new land underneath the Arctic Circle that they can drill for oil in. Mm -hmm. And one of the subs gets sunk 
and then frozen in the deep bottom underneath the Arctic. And, uh, and then we go to 200 years later and it's rescued. And some of the people are able to be uh, defrosted using advanced tech. And it's about them living in the future utopia that has solved these problems, which I mm. thought was kind of cool. Yeah. And, and I may still do that. I mean, these are all ideas that are still on the table. I don't think I'm giving away too much. But with each one, I just felt like, man, I don't know. When I talked to Sirota and he kind of made the joke about how it's like a movie where an asteroid's going to hit like an Armageddon, except no one gives a shit. <laughs> I just laughed and I like that. And I thought, you know, laughter is, it's the best. And also it does a couple things too, because it, it lets people have like a common experience in order to get a crowd laughing. You have to have a shared sort of agreed upon reality. You can't really get 300, 400 people laughing without that agreed upon reality. So I just thought, you know, most people can agree, even my family members who are very right wing and friends of mine who are very progressive, everyone can agree we are living in absolutely unhinged times right now. And I thought maybe that's a good purchase point with this idea. So, yeah, I ended up doing uh, Don't Look Up. Did you just hear this joke of Sirotas or this idea of Sirotas and just go off completely on that? Like how, how much was he involved in the, the story writing or was it just a, was he the kind of the political consultant guy? Uh, no, it, what happened was, and, and it's with any idea, uh, you, you like the idea to like not leave you alone. So he told me that he said that and I was like, oh my God, that's perfect. That's exactly what's going on. And we laughed and we kind of kicked it around for a second. And then I just moved on. I wasn't going to write it. And it was a couple weeks later that I was like, wow, that idea keeps coming back to me. Like why? So I called Sirota. I was like, Sirota, I I think that's the idea. I like that it was simple. Mm -hmm. I like that it wasn't too clever, clever, that it was a big enough entryway for a lot of people to get into it. I've described it as a Clark Kent level disguise for a climate. <laughs> like it, it's not really trying that hard. Um, and I like that about it. And it was big and it was, I, I'm a big fan of execution based ideas. Like I, I don't always love big, like clever premises. I like where they're kind of simple and uh, so then I started beating it out and I would check in with David and no, he was involved and in I would run it by him what the outline was. He, he came up with the idea for the movie within the movie, Total Devastation. That was his idea. He and I kicked around the idea of the profitizing the, the comet uh, and boarding the mission. That was like, uh, that's when I, kn I knew we kind of had a movie. So, and I would show him each draft. Uh, you know, David's a very funny, creative guy. I mean, he's a firebrand, but he also has a good pop sense and he's written some scripts in the past. So he was pretty involved actually from the, from the get-go. I was just intrigued by the premise because in one sense, it's a little obvious. I mean, I guess, is it obvious as climate change? I wonder, have you talked to people or have you gotten a sense from the viewing public? Because I genuinely don't know, you know, I'm so immersed in climate that of course I see everything through that lens. I'm practically crippled by it. But I have been wondering if you just walk in as a normie with no background information on the movie, will you think climate change? Are people thinking climate change from this? Do you, do you have any way of knowing? Yeah. You know, the, the great thing I do is I read some reviews. Um, I don't read all of them, but the one thing I love to do is go on Twitter when the movie opens <laughs> and you see the second by second people right. tweeting. Now, granted, that's a skewed lens because it's 
Twitter, social media. But that coupled with the testing process, we do the screening process, gives me a pretty good idea of how people are seeing it. And what I'm seeing and what we learned in the screening process is about 60 to 65 percent right away think climate crisis. Another 25, 35 percent, there's like a crossover between the two, think COVID, Uh even though the script was written before COVID. But the great news is everyone gets the idea of a society that's so broken, corrupted, careerist, uh, distracted, you know, self-interest, all all the different layers. I I always say like uh, it's the the wire, David Simon's the wire grab bag (laughs) of societal dysfunctions. We just tried to hit all those, touch all those bases, but everyone gets that. And then the way we did the movie was we tried to find the universal dysfunctions across the political spectrum and not dial into the red versus blue too much, although you can't avoid it when you talk about the comet denial in the movie. Clearly, that's hitting the right wing. But well, again, the COVID specifically that part, the COVID analogy is absurdly apt, even though you uh, had no idea. But overall, the the people responding to it as a climate crisis allegory, I've been very happy. There was someone tweeted the other day that they started watching it. It was a scientist, actually. I can't remember. But she said she started watching it with her kids. And within 10 minutes, the kids were like, oh, this is like the climate. (laughs) And all my daughters, I have a 20-year-old and a 16-year-old daughter, all their friends immediately without, none of those people read interviews with me. None of those people (laughs) read the reviews. And they all immediately were like, oh, climate, COVID, climate, COVID, science, science being run over by capitalism, science being run over by power. Um, So, yeah, I've been really uh, very, very happy with the way that's translated. Well, I think it's part of the part of the power of it, too, is it works as, you know, if you if you don't watch it through the climate uh, lens, it works broadly as well. I mean, I was just thinking yesterday that someone looking back 20 years from now at this movie might think, oh, this was about the coup. (laughs) This was about the authoritarian takeover of America, which people are yelling about and other people are ignoring them. And like it all it all works eerily well for that as well. To me, it's it's like we said earlier, it's there are three kind of giant almost hard to emotionally comprehend realities. I think intellectually we get it, but it is the climate crisis is the big one. I mean, that's Jupiter. And then you have the coup, the impending collapse of American democracy. And then the third one for me is is income inequality that is at such a scale that we just never talk about that is breathtaking worldwide. And those three kind of giant realities, uh, if you want to call like the income inequality is like, you know, uh, uh, Venus and and, and the uh, (laughs) the impending collapse of American democracy is like, you know, Mars as far as the size goes. And then the climate (laughs) crisis is like Jupiter plus Saturn plus maybe the sun. And then you're right. There's about five or six other ones, too. There's like the opioid epidemic, there, the, which we do nothing about. There's the gun death epidemic, uh, which we do nothing about. So I, I, I think ultimately someone had said like, hey, relax on calling it a climate crisis. It's really just more of a snapshot of this time. And I thought, you know, that's that's a fair point because the movie really is about our reaction to these very fixable crises and these very, I mean, as complicated as the climate crisis is, like we really could 
handle it. We really could deal with it if we wanted to. I mean, that's what's so uh, incredibly frustrating and, uh, and what makes the climate crisis so horrifying is that we do have technologies, we do have strategies that could seriously curb the horror show we're headed toward. So I think it's fair to say that, that the movie is really more just about this particular screwed up moment that we're living in. I'll just confess, like I've seen a lot of climate change documentaries and shows and art, and they're just like generally pretty bad. And I went in with very low expectations to this, <laughs> terrified that you were going to get into like albedo effect and like try to sort of explain, <laughs> get into biodiversity. I was like, oh, God, uh, no, no, I was just braced. But it was really much more about it's much more about trying to communicate than it is about the details of the crisis itself. And I thought the best part of the movie is the way it shows how the entertainment news, the newsertainment blob just has this capacity to absorb everything <laughs> or just to digest everything and let nothing change it. Like no matter how loud you yell, it just absorbs it. You know, you see it absorb Dr. Mindy as he becomes sort of unwittingly caught up in it. And it just rejects the girl. I can't ever remember her last name. Kate DiBiaschi. DiBiaschi. Yeah. Yes, thank you. It just rejects Kate entirely. But like, it just has this ability to adapt, you know, and absorb and neuter everything. And that's, to me, the most maddening, not just about the climate crisis, but about everything these days, is that everything is at the same pitch. Everything is at the same volume. Everything is just the same blur. And it's just impossible to make anything stick out or to stop or to pause on anything or to think about anything. I mean, for me, the whole, I'm sorry to interrupt, but for me, just piggybacking exactly on what you were saying, the single moment in the movie, well, there's two moments, but the moment where DiCaprio, as Dr. Mindy says on the TV show, why does everything have to be so clever or, or likable? Why can't we, sometimes we just need to be able to say things to each other. <laughs> yes. That was, that's it. I mean, it, it's really an emotional movie. It's not a, it's not a, a narratively complex movie. It's really just the emotion of that. And that's exactly it. These formats, these shows, they will not let you just say things. It always gets twisted and given a certain color or shading. And it's, you know, it's just sort of sitting right there alongside the celebrity, you know, love affair and like the same sort of tone and same visuals. And it's just like those two blur together in such a way that, you know, it, and, I, and I thought another really clever and good part of it was that it's not like. Dr. Mindy or any of the sort of protagonists are free of this or innocent of this, right? Like one of my favorite moments is when uh, Oglethorpe, the head of NASA, who, by the way, Rob Morgan is just amazing. He's love, such a, he's Rob Morgan, oh. such an ace up your sleeve for this movie. He was so good in that role. His whole little thing about Sting, when he's, when he's talking about Sting, it had nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but I just fucking love that. I love that moment so much. But at one point, uh, the head of NASA is sitting there watching and he's sort of getting caught up in this celebrity relationship. You know, he finds himself like really hoping they'll stay together. Like he's not immune to it either. It absorbs you no matter what disposition you come to it with. It's impossible to resist. I mean, this is the one thing I've been saying throughout a lot of the press is like, 
the movie is not over anyone. Like I'm in the movie. I eat Taco Bell. <laughs> I I am like I was way into the Kyrie Irving returning to the Nets the other day. Like <laughs> I I was like Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck. Like I'm not kidding. I'm rooting for them to an unhealthy level. I mean, this stuff is all it's focus grouped. It's algorithmically uh, structured. It's like, you know, they took slot machines, the science of slot machines, and they've applied it to social media, advertising, the way we consume information. It's irresistible. And we're all a part of it. But I think it's important to, like, give ourselves a break to some degree on it. Like, it's going to get us. Life doesn't operate like an action movie where every waking second you're pointed towards the climate crisis or gun violence or income inequality or whatever, or the collapse of American democracy. There are moments where you're going to obsess about why did the general charge you for snacks? I mean, that's why we have it in there. Um, and, I love that bit too, by the way. I know, <laughs> I know it's, it, there's something obvious about it, but that feeling of like, why are people the way they are? And just letting it sort of like letting it get in your head and bug you and not being able to let it go. I, I, that spoke to me so much. I love the reaction to it. People are trying to figure out why he did charge for the stacks. And there's these <laughs> theories that he represents the military industrial complex. He represents government. So people ask me and I'm like, I don't know. They're like, yeah, but you wrote it. I'm like, no, I, I wrote it as that thing that sticks in your head that distracts you even while you're, you know. Uh, but anyway, yeah. And, and you know, comedy really just the idea that we can laugh, we can be a little silly, just took a lot of the edge off of it. And it really opened it up. And, it, and it's been cool. And once again, not everyone's going to laugh at the same thing. Certain people are like, and every the funny thing with comedy is everyone thinks their sense of humor is the gold standard, mm -hmm. which, by the way, I wouldn't change that. That's what's incredible about comedy. But it's funny when, like, some people love the comedy. Some people are like, it's dumb. And they're definitive about it. But like, yeah, all right, that's fine. That's how comedy goes. But it's been really cool. Netflix people were saying they'd never seen, I mean, they do crazy amounts of data. I can only imagine oh my god it's it's crazy and they i'm pretty sure they know how i'm gonna die statistically they're within 96 percent of how i'm gonna die and they said that they've never seen a comedy play across this many countries i think the movie was like number one in like 87 countries and top 10 in like 90 huh. and they've never seen this kind of play across and i think that's actually for people that care about the climate and care about the state of the world i think that's a very hopeful thing that this current moment in the world is that universal. I, I've never experienced that before. Yeah. And some of the stuff in the movie seems pretty U.S. specific, you know, like the media stuff at least feels very, I mean, I don't know, I guess I don't really know what media is like in Turkey or whatever, but it felt very America specific. It turns out it's a lot like it is here. I was talking to, we're working on a project with Bong Joon-ho and Parasites were doing an adaptation of his movie Parasite as a miniseries. Oh, and interesting. He was saying that to me. He said, because he had seen the movie and he was like, I think you're going to be surprised by how well this plays around the world. And I was like, really? You think so? And he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, the problems you have in the movie are everywhere. And he was right. It's landed in a global way that I never anticipated and I really think you, I don't know about the first, but like, at least for me as a moviegoer, this is the first time I've seen these particular dysfunctions put to fiction. The very, I mean, they're very specific to our present moment. And I've just never seen anybody 
else take them on. I think that's why you're getting these moments of people saying like, oh my God, I feel seen because like a lot of people are experiencing this and I just haven't seen it portrayed in, a, in another movie in quite the same way. Yeah, we were talking about, you know, the models I used for this movie tend to be pretty small. I mean, one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years is Death, Death of Stalin, which I've seen like seven times. Mm -hmm. But that's a very, that played to a very particular crowd. It's brilliant. And we weren't trying to emulate that. Our movie is made for a much bigger audience very consciously. But there's like that. There's like, thank you for smoking which once again, very small audience, brilliant movie, love it. And then you got to really go back to like the 60s and 70s back when movies like this would play big. Well, network is, is the obvious analogy, right? I mean, there's network is all over this movie. I mean, that's probably my all-time favorite movie. I mean, there's movies like To Die For, the Buck Henry movie, which I love. There's Wag the Dog, Ace in the Hole. Dr. Strangelove's another obvious one. Uh, I actually think probably, I'm not saying for anyone who wants to jump all over me, I'm not saying our movie's as good as Dr. Strangelove, but as far as the style and sensibility of it, people forget how slapsticky Dr. Strangelove was. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one to maybe look at. But we haven't lived in a time where that, I mean, I guess Mike Judge would be the guy, Office Space, I worship, Idiocracy is brilliant. But neither one of those movies were even remotely commercially successful. They all were found after they kind of bombed in their release. So, yeah, yeah. So it, it was definitely uh, uh, something we were kind of going for on this larger scale. And, you know, we knew with all these actors, we were hoping to bring in a larger audience and Ariana Grande. And uh, it's been very cool seeing like Ariana Grande fans watch this movie <laughs> and respond to it. I wanted to ask about the casting and about the crew. To what extent was this, I mean, this is just, it's an insane, it's like A-list all the way down to like the, the D-level parts. You know? <laughs> there are like A-listers all over the screen constantly. To what extent did you present this to people as, hey, we want to make a like socially conscious climate movie? Was that part of the motivation of the, of the actors joining up? Yeah, I never framed it like that. What I just said was... We are living, you know, I always describe the world we're living in right now using, it's fun every time you say it, I try and use a different analogy. So the one I've been saying lately is it's like a bouncy castle full of hyenas and long stem wine glasses. <laughs> That's what it's like to be alive right now. So my pitch to all the actors was we're going to try and make a movie that's about this time that's never existed. And that's crazy. And we want to try and make it funny, but we also want to make it really emotionally moving as well. And yeah, it's about the climate crisis. Everyone knew that. They got that. But hopefully it's going to, you know, have a, just a big feeling to it for people. And with our casting director, Francine Maisler, we hit a point where we had a bunch of big name actors. And I remember Francine and I talked about it and she said, you know, isn't the point of this movie that you kind of go all the way and that the movie is a comment on what's going on and the movie should have a breath? And I said, yeah, I totally agree. And so we usually we would have stopped because you don't <laughs> want the movie to be overwhelmed with stars and be distracting. Right. But in this case, we felt like, oh, no, that's kind of the point of the movie. And that's when we got like Timothy Chalamet to play the part of Yule and Ariana Grande came in and. You know, uh, I'm trying to remember the order. Kate Blanchett. And normally we wouldn't have filled those roles with 
recognizable actors. But in this mm-hmm. case, Kid Cudi, I think, came on at that point. We just said, let's uh, let's drive straight through the locked gates. <laughs> yes, the density of A-listers is so high that it does feel almost like a comment in and of itself. It, it almost feels like you're making a point. We were joking in the edit with my editor, Hank Corwin, uh, and I was saying this movie's like a combination of it's a mad, 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 mad world and Lars von Trier's melancholia. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that was another part of the movie, too, was the style of how we cut it and put it together. We wanted it to feel kind of jumpy and assaultive. And uh, keeping you off balance, sort of like the world feels now, too. So that was another element to the movie. Yeah, I love the editing. I just have to say that. That guy is, I I don't know how much of it was you and how much of it was him, but it was just really, most of, to me, the big laughs were from the editing. It came from, uh, first off, he's one of the great editors of all time. He's He edited like on JFK. He's edited Terrence Malick movies. I mean, the guy is a legend, Hank Corwin. And it came from Big Short and Vice, even though those movies had funny things in them, they weren't like full on comedies. And I kept telling Hank, I think your style would work. I think this kind of cut in the middle of the line, the sort of breaking the rhythm of traditional editing, I think it would work really well for comedy. And he's a funny kind of sheepish neurotic guy and he's like i don't know i mean i've never cut a comedy and i'm like no hank i think it's gonna work but it's another element of the movie for some people they are thrown off by the style but for me really uh, oh yeah oh yeah i've seen people complain about it was that they some people think it's sloppy like unintentionally it's like oh my god no every one of them is absolutely perfectly timed to me i mean it really gets at the feeling too because you get in this like sort of like swept up in these super intense kind of crazy moments and then it just cuts to this quiet moment where they're trying to digest it afterwards and you feel the same thing you're like whoa what the what was that i was just why was i just so worked up you know it's it's that same whipsaw feeling of modern media that's it i mean that's that that was what we were going for those montages and the slices and images and and Hank had the brilliant idea to play the natural world as a character in the movie. And I thought it's funny how the process of making a movie, you can actually learn things about the climate. Mm. And, and that was something like, oh, yeah, the natural world is a character in the story of the climate right now. And it was amazing how well it just fit with the movie. And that was all credit to Hank Corwin. That was his breakthrough idea. Yeah, and it was there are these cuts of nature scenes, but they're not like the conventional climate documentary nature scenes of pastoral beauty here and there. Like some of them are just weird, you yeah. know. They're not like it's not necessarily natural beauty. It's just like look at this weird, fucked up natural world. <laughs> I mean, the one that got me, and he he just cut this in. I didn't have it in the script. Was the shot towards the end of the movie of the bee. And every time we would screen the movie, I would see that bee. I would get teary-eyed like it was like a punch in the gut to me because the bee is so beautiful looking and perfectly constructed and delicate. And I was like, freaking Hank, man, you got me with that bee (laughs) shot. (laughs) Nice bee shot. Well, let's talk about the ending because this, um, you know, I'm sure is controversial. I don't know. Are we doing spoilers on this pod? I guess we're doing 
Yeah, we should warn people if you haven't seen it, we're about to, because part of the impact of the movie is most people do not know that ending is coming. They just never imagine. Some people do, but most people don't imagine that we would ever end that way. So, yep, big spoiler alert. Listeners, skip forward uh, a minute or two. So, you know, you watch a Hollywood movie, especially a big Hollywood movie with a bunch of stars. You are trained by a lifetime of movie viewing to expect the white horse at the end, to expect the, you know, the good guys to pull it off. You know, it just inches right up to the ending and you're like, well, well, oh, well, I guess not. <laughs> it's really, I, 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 I mean, this might be perverse, but I was delighted when I finally realized, I was like, oh, he's not going to do it. Sweet. He's just going to let it play out. How much did you think about that ending? How early did that come in? And like, what do you think is the larger significance of the ending? What are you trying to say? Yeah. So the the two big ideas, the one was Comet's going to hit Earth and no one cares, obviously. That's the doorway into the movie. And then the second big idea was it just I was kicking around this idea. And part of it came from reading that book, Sapiens, you know, the Yuval Harari. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, I thought the big idea of that book was when he posed that our ability to create myths and story is what separated Homo sapiens from Neanderthals, Cro-Magnons. It's like a truly legitimately big idea. I know some people kind of knock Yuval Harari, but like that is a heavyweight idea. So that really got me thinking just about what that means, that stories are that important. And obviously we've talked about sort of stories and what they mean and narratives for years and years and years. So the idea was just that, my God, we've watched like 10,000 movies, whether it's Marvel, whether it's James Bond, whether it's an action movie, Fast and the Furious, whatever it is, the comedies, I mean, the stuff I've done. And it's always a happy ending. Mm. You just know it's coming. You know Hollywood's going to give it to you. And in some ways, I just started wondering like, are we sitting back and watching the climate and just expecting a happy ending? I've actually heard yes. a lot of, a lot of yes. people. That's part of it. I really think like someone somewhere has got this. That's how things work, right? I think so. And, and I've heard people say it. Like, in fact, DiCaprio told me a story where he was, Elon Musk was at some conference and DiCaprio kind of implored him like, dude, like, come on, like you've got resources. <laughs> and Elon Musk is like, the technology will solve it. And I was like, oh, God, that is terrifying. Oh, and and uh, terrifying. and I just hear this from a lot of people. They're going to figure it out. Ah, don't worry, they'll get it. And I was like, no, like we're not like it's we're now at the point where we're definitively not. So I just thought there's a simple power to going straight down the chute with this ending and not having the white horse ride over the horizon line. And I have never been more nervous for a screening in my entire life <laughs> than the first time I screened this movie. There was a break in the pandemic. I think it was after, it was definitely after the vaccine and we couldn't believe it. They're like, you can do a screening if everyone's vaxxed and they wear masks, we safely can do it. And I was like, wow. And so, you know, you gotta remember, this is a, a big movie. It's Netflix, they're a big company. You have these big stars in the movie. 
And we're going to go to like, I think the first one was in Orange County. And we're going to test screen this movie that ends with, once again, spoiler alert, the entire planet dying. (laughs) I was telling my wife and Hank, my editor, who during the period of putting the movie together, I spend equal amounts of time with. And I I told them, I said, I've never been this nervous for a screening. This is feels like we may have screwed up in a, in a profound way where we could walk out of this screening and, you know, they test it from a zero to a hundred and, you know, the test screen, it, it's not a science. It's, it's very loose. You use it as a loose guide rail, but in general, if you get like a 35, that's really bad. And you kind of want to be in like high fifties to low eighties in that zone. And you're in the ballpark. And I was saying, I was like, there's a real chance. And I had heard this about Idiocracy that Mike Judge actually told me this, that the first time he screened it, he got a 20. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I met him down in Austin. And I said, wait, wait, what? And he goes, yeah, we got a 20. Guy, you got to have such strength of mind to stick to your guns in the face of that. A 20. I've never heard of that in my life. And he told me how then the studio felt like they were protecting Judge. And that's why they kind of buried the movie And I was like, really? That's what happened. I mean, maybe Spielberg and Scorsese are two people that could score a 20 on a movie and say, I don't care, put it in 3,000 theaters anyway. (laughs) Right. No one else on the planet has the clout to tell a studio, I know we got a 20, but go with it. Like, there's just no one. So I'm driving to the screening and I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. But I love the ending. We've been watching it. We've screened it for ourselves. I think it's beautiful. And we screen it and it's the audience's favorite part of the movie no shit universally unequivocally how does the whole thing work do like do do people write responses as well or do they just like tick a tick a one to ten type of thing no no everyone fills out a card there's the one to ten stuff but then there's handwritten stuff you do a focus group with 20 people afterwards they ask in-depth questions universally no question about it favorite part of the movie the ending Interesting. I'm curious why. Like, do people say why it was so satisfying to them? Could they articulate it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the focus group, the person who leads it, this is incredible woman who's actually in Vice. Uh, she runs the focus group in Vice, where, you know, true story that they ran focus groups on the Iraq war. And she actually runs our focus groups and she asked them and they were very clear about it. They said, we're sick of the bullshit endings. <laughs> and it was an incredible moment where you realize, oh, Of course, the audience is way smarter than a lot of times we give them credit for. They're totally tuned into what's going on in the world. They then all expressed it. They then talked about the climate crisis. They talked about COVID. They talked about all the shit going on in the world. They're fully in line with it. They're sick of like constantly getting served fake happy endings. And it was the most amazing. I'm a big fan. And even though I've done silly comedies, I'm a big fan and never underestimate your audience. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I always say The Simpsons is like an example of you can be brilliantly stupid and you should even when you're doing silly stuff, try and be top of your intelligence, silly. And and so I've always believed audiences can go way further than people think. They're way smarter. That, and voting blocks, the population at large, they get way more than they get credit from, from the media, from the, you know, the savvy crowd, uh, the gatekeepers. But this even surprised me. Yeah. Yeah. Number one part of the movie, unequivocally, no doubt about it. I mean, the whole movie's sort of about us bullshitting each other like it would have been uniquely it would have been a unique sort of betrayal to have a 
to have a happy ending to this particular movie. I was never going to do it. There was never one moment <laughs> where I was going to do it. The only thing I loaded up on were I just wanted to make sure the balance at the end, that it it is a comedy, even though it's this very emotional ending. And so, you know, I did shoot the joke that we have in the movie that's in the middle of the credits. And then we have a joke at the very end of the credits. And I did think that was important too, because some people were really in tears. Like we had some very emotional responses to the ending. Uh, my wife went into her car and cried for like 10 minutes after she saw it. Oh. We had another agent um, saw the movie when we were first screening it, and she was so emotional, she backed her car into a pole when she was leaving the screening. <laughs> so it, it's, it's and we've seen it in the online responses. A lot of people like moved to like serious tears. So I did think it was important that you don't want to be traumatized. You want to still be able to laugh yet have those feelings. So that was more the alchemy of the ending was how we were going to kind of balance that. But yeah, there was never any chance that was ending anything other way yeah and it's it's like sad in the context of the movie itself but i also think part of what's hitting people is that it gives them permission to imagine that in the real world there's no <laughs> white horse you know what i mean that like bad that like sad endings are perfectly possible in the real world and yeah. once you really start to think about that in this you know in the climate context it's big it's overwhelming i think unless you can carry some of that reality with you about the climate. I think it's essential to understanding the climate right now. I think you have to realize this could end poorly and, in fact, is on track right now to end poorly. And I, I do think there's just a kind of cultural thing of just that's hard for some people. And by the way, that's OK. I'm not saying they're wrong or their reaction to the movie is wrong. That's OK. But I do think it's really hard. And I think you have to realize that, that what we're seeing right now, it's not going well. It's not going well at all. Can we talk about the other ending? I guess my my personal feelings about that one are a little bit more mixed. The mid-credits, yeah. I guess, the, yeah. spa the spaceship business. I couldn't fully tell whether that was just a gag to kind of like prevent people from you know going home and hanging themselves or or whatever or, or if there was more significance or a point freighted in there what's your take on that well there's a little let me say for the audience since we're spoiling things the rich people escape the disaster on a spaceship find another planet and then are immediately consumed <laughs> by the by the planet's uh, denizens it started as the rich people just get away. And the original scripted ending was just they land on that planet and it's beautiful. And they're just like, this is going to work out great. And I just ended. That's kind of what I hoped it would be. That's kind of what I was rooting for. I got to be honest. Well, what ended up happening was we ended up improvising this beat about Meryl's a great improviser. And she ended up, she kept saying, I want to know how I'm going to die. And so she put it <laughs> in the scene. And then Mark Rylance and I sort of said, well, maybe she gets eaten by a creature on a planet. And he's like, oh, yeah, we don't know what it means. We did it. And then it started really making us laugh that maybe we do see her get eaten by a Brontorocked, which was <laughs> just a name we made up on the day. But I was hoping it did both because you see the pods of the rich people and they're from oil companies and lobbying firms. Yeah. And it's got this sting and they walk out and there's this beautiful planet. And then we did just have this joke, which some people are going to like, some people aren't. There are some people that like, like Judd Apatow is like, oh my God, that's my favorite joke ever. Uh -huh. And then there were some other people like DiCaprio was a little bit like, 
don't know if I love that joke. So it, it, once again, it's comedy. And my wife actually was like, why do you have to, can't you just end with the world ending? And I was like, so we actually tried it one time and it was tough. Uh, so what, what I ended up doing was I like the idea of like, you get the ending of the world ending, you get that Bon Iver song, which is a beautiful song, and you get to see the earth undone. And like, that's an ending. And then we go for a little while longer and there's another little thing that happens where it's the rich people get away with it, but then there's the big joke. And then we go for a little while. Like, I actually am a big fan of sort of like you can have an ending and then have another ending and sort of whichever one you need, you can choose to lean into. <laughs> and like Apatow was telling me he leaned in heavily to the president being eaten by the Brontorock. Like <laughs> he, he, was, he needed that. You didn't as much. My wife didn't. DiCaprio didn't. It's more just that I think the whole world ending has one sort of tone, emotional tone. But then the world ending, but all the rich fuckers who made it happen <laughs> escaping untouched has a whole has a very different emotional complexion. And I just and that, you know, I, I, I thought that was an interesting move. Well, but then if you find out the rich people die, then it like it's a little happy. Really... Yeah. I mean, there was another ending I had where the rich people then started saying, who's going to, you know, let's get my house built. And someone's like, no, no, the pod with all the workers in it actually crashed they're all dead and then the rich people started going i'll pay anyone a billion dollars who will build me a house and then another guy went i'll pay five billion someone else goes 10 billion and we just pulled out on that and my friend tom sharpling he liked that ending and as i'm talking to you i realized god you know what we could have done on netflix we could have done three different endings oh yeah some cuts could have had the rich people with no one to work for them Another one could have had the Brontorock. Another one could have just had the rich people get away with it. And that's it. And we could have actually, I wish I thought of this. We could have told Netflix every third screening has this ending. The next screening, <laughs> that would have been really cool, actually. I mean, it's, it's it, it makes a difference in the context of the movie, but it also makes it a big difference in sort of like what you think about climate change, you know, like how you think climate change is going to play out. Like, oh, they're not going to. Rich people can sort of survive it. They're not going to get away. No way. No way. Right. I mean, <laughs> this idea that they're going to build know. bunkers or go to another planet, it's ludicrous. I mean, you saw it when we had the fires here in L.A. I think one of Murdoch's homes like partially burnt down, like they ain't getting away from this. There's no I mean, they'll probably be like, let's if we imagine the climate crisis going to its worst degree. I mean, maybe you could see some people clinging to the poles to survive. I mean, it's very debatable if it's an extinction level event, but it is very possible an extinction level event. But if people do survive, it's going to be grim. I'm not sure the money that I think the money can help for the first couple of waves of the climate. This is me, by the way, just completely theorizing. There's no basis to what I'm saying. Let me be very clear about that. But I, I don't know. Well, no one knows. Yeah. I mean, but we can kind of guess, right? I mean, we know that like the whole center of the earth becomes totally uninhabitable from extreme heat and wet bulb events. We know that the giant fires, they'll probably be perpetual fires. Smoke will just, there'll be mass inhalation events where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people die from smoke inhalation, drought, famine, mass migrations, wars. 
Uh, even the polls are going to be nasty. I mean, they'll just be, they'll have to come up with different categories for hurricanes. They'll be like category 10 hurricanes. We may, I was talking to someone online who was saying it is possible we could have a perpetual storm on earth if this thing really does hit 3C, 4C increase. I almost think though my, I mean, maybe this is just my personality, but my even more dystopic possibility is that we sort of kind of a little bit half solve it. And so it gets bad, but not apocalyptic and bad, but not apocalyptic will just probably mean exacerbating existing inequalities, right? It'll just mean a, a sort of exaggerated, even more grim version oh. of the sort of global oligarchy. Oh, that's bad. I, that's a bad one. You, by the way, you might be right. One of the things, because we talk about this nonstop, I have like my group of friends who are equally as freaked out as I am and that can talk about it. And one of the things I always say is, you know, the saving grace may be that our civilization collapses, meaning we don't produce more CO2 that actually civilization collapsing stops a lot of the emissions. And that's, by the way, that's a hellish proposition because that's closer to what you're talking about. We're at like one and a half to two degrees Celsius increase. And we start to see systemic collapse around the planet. You start to see wars, refugee, fire, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you're right. Like, it's like a billion people have survived and the inequality, it's more like road warrior. And I'm not being flip with that comparison. I mean, literally, that could happen. What do you What do you make of the of the criticism? You know, sort of related to this point. Like one of the, I guess it's a little peculiar to me, but one of the sort of critical responses has been to the movie is this is not an accurate analogy to climate change <laughs> for X for X Y and Z reasons. You know, but one of the things people say is climate's not a yes or no, succeed or fail, one or the other proposition there are all these degrees in between there's all these sort of you know we're going to land somewhere in the middle and there's a sort of emotional satisfaction to a comet that either hits or doesn't that we're never going to get out of climate change a, a, a do you agree with that and b do you think that's relevant to the quality of the movie do you know what i mean like did you feel like you were trying to do an exact analogy to climate change god no no i mean <laughs> it's a sleight of hand allegories are a sleight of hand right it's like you know, the prodigal son coming back doesn't exactly match the massive emotional bandwidth of loving forgiveness. Like, like, <laughs> well, the brother was kind of a dick, whereas, you know, loving <laughs> forgiveness knows no bounds in judgment. So I don't know if the prodigal son was the exact allegory, you know, I mean, like no allegory is a perfect fit. So yeah, there's a little cheat that we did. We took away the hyper object of global warming which is so vast and timeless and slow moving. And we put in a very concrete event, a comet. So yeah, no, it's not a precise match at all. And, and I was telling someone, I, the real story of the movie is that the hyper object, the, the uh, hard to categorize force is really our reaction to the comet. And I would say that's the important story when it comes to the climate crisis. It's about our reaction to the climate crisis, which is pretty horrific to this point and kind of a, a disaster. And also so sprawling that it's difficult to get your head around. It's hard to, you know, there's so many pieces of it and parts of it. I mean, there are good news stories. Like I wanted to ask you about this too. You've said uh, in previous interviews that lately you've gotten a little bit more optimistic about the tech, the science and tech side of this. And I think that's for good reason, I feel the same way, you know, like the, the sort of leaps and bounds being made now in clean technologies 
are amazing. So you've got that going one direction. Like you could tell a story, like if clean energy just keeps getting cheaper as fast as it's going now, it's going to be dirt cheap in five to 10 years. And like, you know, and utopia awaits. But then you look at this other track of like, oh, American democracy is falling apart and <laughs> income equality, et cetera. There's just like, you could tell completely different narratives about where we are in history and where we're going. Like, how do you, just to narrow it down, how do you reconcile those two stories, the sort of positive tech story about climate change and then the total flaming bag of shit dysfunction <laughs> po political <laughs> story? How do you reconcile those? Like when you look out 10 years, if you wanted to make a movie about 10 years from now or 15 or 20 years from now, what does it look like? Do you have the slightest fucking clue? I mean, there, there's some stuff. Stuff can change so fast. The example I always use, and it's a common one, is that I remember being with my kids when they were young in the car and they were like, Dad, why is gay marriage illegal? Because they have friends at school had, you know, same-sex parents. And I was like, you know, it's weird. Some people are hung up on it. I don't know why they care. I was like, is it ever going to be illegal? It's like, you know, it doesn't look great politically. And then like... <laughs> Three months later, it was legal. Like, and my kids were like, you said it. Well. I was like, I'm as shocked as you. I don't know what happened. <laughs> Joe Biden misspoke and then Obama couldn't back <laughs> off. I think that's what just made gay marriage. And, and it turns out people were way cooler with it than most people thought. Yeah, so, I yeah. mean, that was a crazy rate of change. So like I'm, you know, I'm working with a group out of UCLA that's that's got some pretty serious breakthroughs on removing uh, CO2 from the ocean. And it's it's exciting stuff. They're nowhere near the scale uh, to do it. I mean, they'll need like a trillion dollars to really like make mm -hmm. a dent. But is it possible, you know, because technology doesn't advance in a linear way, it's it's nonlinear advancement. It a lot of times happens in spurts. So it's very possible you and I could be talking, and you know this, in a year or two, and we could be like, holy shit, those guys from Carnegie Mellon, like, what do you know? Like, they they had that breakthrough, and there was someone in our in the Pentagon who was smart enough to go, hey, let's move $100 billion from this B-52 bomber thing and do this, and we're actually rolling back some CO2. Like, that could happen. But if I had to bet, if I was at a casino, I'm just not seeing it. The, the will and action and awareness part of it is such a train wreck right now. Sure. Like, what if that happens and Donald Trump is president and Republicans are in charge of both houses of Congress? Would it even... Would it make a difference if there was a tech breakthrough in the woods and no one heard? A hundred percent. Like the U.S. just suddenly becomes not a player in solving the climate crisis. Like suddenly all eyes go to Europe and China and the U.S. is just out of the picture. And suddenly, you know, it's like we're the bad guys. I mean, I'm happy what's happening down in Brazil and with Chile that we're starting to see some progressive leaders step in down there. So hopefully they could be a part of it, too. But. Yeah. And is it OK if some other countries get on the stick? I mean, the Chinese are not dumb, like they know what's coming. You know, Europe clearly knows what's coming. And yeah, but you're right. If the Republicans take over, which it looks like they're going to uh, because the Democrats have just completely face planted in three years. If the Democrats haven't done anything and the Republicans stroll in, they're not given power back. I mean, we know what they're doing. Yes. Um, and that may be all she wrote for the U.S., but then you may see some private industry. So that's the part that I'm optimistic about. I also am just a big believer in pain. Um, you know, pain got me to lose 40 pounds. I had a very minor heart attack. 
pain got me to stop smoking regularly. I, I have to confess, I still cheat and have one or two on occasion, but that was pain. And I do think there's some pain coming our way with this stuff. I mean, there's fires we can't even imagine. There's storms we can't even imagine. And that could shock us into waking up very quickly in like a three-week period of time. So um, I guess I just, in a really long-winded way, told you I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, it's, it's uh, the the future i mean it's i guess it's never been easy to predict the future but it just feels so incredibly opaque now i don't even yeah. know like the basic valence you know it's just like dystopia or, or or utopia or somewhere in between i couldn't begin i like your, your guess of somewhere in between man if they leverage if we solve some of this and it becomes just crazy robber baron 3.0 like an 1880s gilded age i'm gonna be freaking pissed that's that's just the grossest outcome and you're, and you're probably right they're gonna try and swing it that way I don't think you're wrong. Well, this is, I, I feel like this is the history of America is when things get so bad that the working class is about to revolt or go communist, they'll give a little, they'll do a new deal or whatever, just enough to keep the basic system in place. Yeah. And that's kind of what I could envision happening on a large scale here. I too. think that's a good, good guess. Do you remember the Arab Spring when those revolutions were spreading? There's a story oh, as yes. part of that that I, not enough people talk about, that Saudi Arabia just cut checks for 25 grand for everyone in their country and handed them out. And people were like, cool. And they didn't have a revolution. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's one way to do it. Jesus. I mean, it, it worked. Everyone was like, oh, awesome. 25 grand. Is it that far off from what we did with the COVID uh, relief bill? I mean, no, no. I just wish goddamn Biden would do it with student debt, man. It's the only button he's got left to push. And he just, they won't <sighs> do it. They will not I do know. it. I want them to get the, like, the comets hitting <laughs> in 2024 uh, uh, mindset. We need to spend all the money we can, like, as fast as possible. I think all of D.C. is designed not to let that mindset happen. Yes. Every every, yes. every restaurant, hallway, every bit of Muzak playing is like, don't let anyone have that mindset. But, yeah, we'll see. Let me ask you about Hollywood. I'm sure... Um, Poor Leo DiCaprio probably has answered this question four <laughs> million zillion times. But everybody, I'm sure it's obligatory. You're asked every time you are interviewed at this point. But there's uh, will be some people who say, uh, the last thing I want is a bunch of rich Hollywood, carbon-intensive lifestyle, private plane flying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, trying to act like they care about climate change. If they cared, they would. I don't know, sell their yacht or whatever. <laughs> what, how do you how do you process all that? How do you think about that general critique? I mean, the thing I always say is, you know, people think of Hollywood as some bizarre foreign country. But like I wake up every morning, I swim in my pool with my three dolphins that I own. <laughs> I get in my helicopter. I fly to my solid glass pyramid office. And, no, no. Like a um, normal working man. <laughs> Uh, I would say this, if it's a good faith argument, yeah, give us shit. Like, uh, I know Leo doesn't fly private anymore. I mean, we all are as green as we can possibly be as making as much noise as we can. 
I'm trying to do a bunch of different things. I'm not going to list them because that just sounds pathetic. But if it's tote bags, you have hemp hemp tote bags. (laughs) I have hemp tote bags. (laughs) I, I, hey, Dave, I turn off my lights an hour earlier than I need to. Whoa there. Um, So we're sweating. We're feeling pain out here. (laughs) I, I would say if it's a good faith argument, if someone's saying that to just avoid the subject, then fuck that. Like that's bullshit. But if someone's really saying, hey, you hypocrites, like, what about this? What about this? Like, I'm here for it. Like, give us shit. Like, is there something we can be doing better? Is there something we can be more aware of? I think we have to get used to that just being a part of how we talk to each other without being defensive. Mm. Uh, Like, if you told me right now, like, hey, you know, you guys never have done this with your movie shoots, but you could do X, Y, and Z. I think I've got to be like, oh, shit, I never thought of that. You're totally right. So I I think it's good when it's done in good faith, when it's done in bad faith as a way to just shuck off the whole discussion. Then I I roll my eyes at it. I sort of think it's the latter most of the time, but who knows? I'm sure. By the way, I'm I'm playing a little bit dumb because I do go on social media (laughs) and 90 percent of the time it's the latter. No question about it. In terms of good climate's presence in your own life also, do you talk to your kids about it? Like, how do you, you know, like one of the, I don't want to say obviously that, you know, you have to have kids to be concerned about the future. That would be a dumb thing to say, but obviously having kids, you know, my kids, I have an 18 year old and a 16 year old and they're going to be, yep. you know, all this, all my life I've been talking about like 2030, 2040, 2050, this or that has to happen. They're going to be alive during those <laughs> years in the prime of their <sighs> friggin' lives. And uh, I have gone back and forth about how to think about that a million times. But how do you think about that? And do you talk to your daughters about it? Like, how do they process it? Yeah, we do. We have kind of, they saw the movie, obviously. My older daughter was very emotional about it. Younger daughter loved it. I was emotional, but. I feel like if I made a work of art that my 18-year-old showed open emotion in response to, I would just be (laughs) parading around the fucking streets like a a king. It's kind of true, by the way. I don't think they've ever had a reaction to anything. I've done like this going through the years like they they kind of mostly tolerated what I've done and then yeah, they right. discovered the that early, I understand yeah <laughs> and they discovered the early comedies their friends like the early comedies so they love like Step Brothers and Anchorman and stuff but um the way I talk to them is kind of mostly the way we're talking right now what I say is this is very very serious it's the biggest issue of our lifetime it's huge it's no joke it's not like a normal issue it's a thousand times issue. However, we have technology and science where, and people can do amazing stuff when they have the will and the direction. So don't get hopeless about it. Uh, There's going to be times where there's going to be like during the pandemic, we couldn't go in our backyard because it was filled with smoke from the Pasadena fires. Their aunt lived up in Oregon. She had to evacuate her house because the AQI was around 550. Mm. Uh, So they've already encountered this stuff. It's already part of their life. And we just talk about, I just tell them, you don't have to solve it all by yourself. You know, just find a couple little things you can do. Make sure to talk about it. Make sure to feel it in your bones and you'll find your kind of way you can pitch in and we're going to do what we can do. And I think the trick is just not to freak out, even though many times I am fully freaking out. I think (laughs) my mantra is just always we can only do what we can do. So if I ever get too freaked out, I remind them or I remind myself we can only do what we can do. And that kind of instantly calms me down and I make movies. So we made a movie. 
and we'll do some, we have like probably more money than we should because our society's broken and screwed up. So I'm going to try and use some of that money to do some other stuff and we'll make little personal choices and we'll talk about it. And that's what we can do. So I, I think it's a lot of, it's about tone and uh, emotional tone and providing the right perspective and sense of the moment. But it's tricky. I mean, there's no question about it. I've kept you a long time. So just a, a, a final couple about Hollywood and these kind of movies. You, I think, sort of baffled the universe when, when you pivoted and did the big short out of nowhere, went from, you know, comedies that are dumb in a smart way to something that's smart in a smart way and, and about uh, an issue of substance. And I think probably you baffled people. And I think probably a lot of people thought that was going to fall on its face and it didn't. And you've kept at it and you've kept succeeding at it. So I'm just wondering, like, what's the temperature among your peers in Hollywood about making more of an effort to engage with issues, social issues? You know, it's so fraught for all the reasons we've discussed, but you're making a go of it and and succeeding. So is anybody going to follow along? Have you talked to other filmmakers about this? Yeah. You know, one of the coolest things I heard as a reaction to this was a couple of other filmmakers were like, you know what? Hey, can I talk to you about an idea that I have? Uh, (laughs) Maybe. And I actually did get some of that. And I think they saw like, if I can take the right crosses that came with those reviews <laughs> and the savaging I took online and and then in the end have the movie find an audience like it did I think they're like shit if he can do that we can do that and and I think the biggest thing that's really been incredible about this movie and the other movies too you know Big Short made a nice amount of money uh, I think Vice when all said and done will probably break even but uh, Big Short made a nice chunk of change Succession obviously uh, very different because uh, that's Jesse Armstrong writes that, but still a show I directed the pilot, produce on. That's a very different tone. We have about, we did Q Into the Storm, the docuseries, which was very successful, got very high ratings for HBO. So I think what people are starting to see is you can make money doing this, that it's not some altruistic thing, like that people want to, audiences want to hear what's going on. And that it's a good thing that you can talk to people about the real stuff that's happening and they're excited by it. So uh, it doesn't have to be altruistic. It doesn't have to be pure business. And there is this like nice middle ground. So yeah, for the first time, I really started hearing people actively, about three people actively reach out to me that want to talk about ideas. So hopefully, knock on wood, I I think it's bound to happen. You you can't live in the world we're living in right now and and pretend it's not going on. So I think you're going to see more and more people going for it, whether it's in a subtle way, an overt way, a funny way, a horror movie, like there's a thousand different ways to tell the story of right now. And I think we're going to see more of it. Yeah. I hope we don't end up in five years thinking, oh man, I wish we hadn't told all those filmmakers to talk about <laughs> social issues. What were we thinking? I don't I know. Often think I, that when, I often think that when people started talking about climate change, I was like, oh man, I miss when people weren't talking oh, about climate change. Weren't those good days? <laughs> oh. I, the year I always say is 1997. Do you remember 1997? It was like, it just felt like we were like, no one gave a shit about any, like, yeah. and I know Clinton kind of sucked. There was stuff on the horizon. I mean, there was, the Republicans were starting to get a little crazy. Like there was bad shit, but oh my God, it felt like my seventh birthday party, 1997. <laughs> oh, 
I miss it. Yeah, the 21st century has mostly blown so far. I got to say, <laughs> just two thumbs down from over here. So f- final question then, and I'm like 75% serious about this. Have you thought about making a movie about a reactionary movement that takes hold in a democracy and grows and exploits weaknesses in media and institutions to eventually take over and institute a one-party autocratic state? Just pulling examples out of the, just spitball in here. So I have my idea for my next movie, and it's not that, (laughs) but it's a close neighbor of what you just said. It's about two blocks up and one block over. And I will tell you this, from doing this movie and from doing Vice and The Big Short and Succession and Q and Q and The Storm and all this stuff, it does seem to always come back to big loads of dirty money clogging up our system. And I feel like if Don't Look Up and Vice and The Big Short were about heart attacks, I feel like the dirty money is the plaque. It's Mm -hmm. what's blocking the arteries. And I think I have an idea that's kind of funny and kind of interesting for a way to go that. I I haven't started writing it yet, but I'm kind of interested in it. And as far as the autocratic rule, yeah. Yeah, we have a bunch of projects at our company that are in development that circle around that, get near that. I mean, we're constantly looking for ways to kind of play with that. Well, my other my other topic I want somebody to take on that I have also been thinking is unfictionalizable. I don't know what the word is. I mean, I thought I kind of thought climate was too, but you've managed to make a good go out of it. But you know, a lot of the problems in our country now are because of the electoral college is fucked up and the Senate representation is skewed and gerrymandering and basically all these like very boring procedural, you know, sort of structural institutional issues are playing a huge role in this minority being able to basically control the country. And how on earth do you make that interesting? Get the American movie public <laughs> excited well, about so check this filibusters. Out. So we're doing a movie called Rat Fucked, starring Paul Dano, that's about <laughs> how they gerrymandered America. It's the Ooh. story of who came up with the idea. That's actually... We've sold that. That's happening at Hulu. Um, we The idea I'm thinking of gets into a lot of that procedural stuff, and I think I found a way to wrap it in a fun bow. By the way, that stuff is wildly interesting. Well, I find it. I certainly find it interesting. I, I think it's just how it's told to the public. They, it's presented as boring. Um, so we are working what on that. What you need is Margot Robbie in a bath talking about <laughs> filibusters. <laughs> We need the Margot Robbie in a bubble bath channel where all the news is read. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but no, we are working on one about gerrymandering. Uh, that's actually already sold and set up. And then this other one gets into a lot of that procedural stuff. So that's exactly why we started this company is Hyperoject Industries. The goal is to, I really believe that stuff is interesting and there's a way to do it. So we're just, you know, we have a lot of projects circling around exactly around exactly what you're talking about. Awesome. Well, uh, I, I will look forward to those. That's uh, it's a good time for geeks in the movie world. Absolutely. We've always been, we've always been pretty comfortable in the movie world. Movie world's always been kind <laughs> to geeks. <laughs> yes, but all, usually geeks trying to appeal to the vaguely imagined jocks of their, of their <laughs> youth. Now they're just straightforwardly appealing to one another, which I find. I do got to tell you, Dave, full disclosure, I've been lifting weights this entire oh, interview. Oh no, are you yeah. getting swole? Yeah, I'm so swole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all swole up, bro. <laughs> yeah, it's time to, time to go in front of the camera, maybe? Or? <laughs> 
Well, man, thanks for having me on. This was uh, a pleasure, and I can't believe uh, this is the first time. I've, like I said, I've just been reading your stuff and following you for a long time, and I just thank you for everything you do. Well, likewise, thanks for making this movie. Wow, did it stir things up. It <laughs> you did. Achieved, you achieved that. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it continues to. And uh, honest to God, that was maybe the most enjoyable conversation I've had during the entire press run of this. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That was like, I needed that badly. My soul needed that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've been going through it. So oh. uh, good luck enduring the rest of it. Absolutely, man. Be well. And uh, let me know when these come out. Awesome. See you, Adam. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next time.